Block KC, what is good? Woo! Merch is here. Flannel Sizen is here. It is truly an honor to be with you tonight. My name is Grant Martins. I've been serving here at the Block since its inception, but every other time I've been here, I've had the joy of sitting in those comfy seats there. This is my first time with a microphone taped to my face. The first time I'll be standing for the entire time, so keep me in your thoughts. Before we get started, though, turn to the people around you, share what is your favorite high school job, what was your favorite high school or college job? All right, we'll bring it back here. You can finish those, sharing those horror stories later on. Um, when I think about high school work, I think about a few things. I think about pushing the lawnmower in the straightest lines you've ever seen, listening to some, um, some dotchery, some three doors down in my wired headphones back when they made the headphones that, that had cords on them. You know, if, if I go crazy, then will you still call me Superman? I was like, yeah, like, no one even called me Superman. I'm like chugging a Mountain Dew live wire or something. If I'm alive and well, will you be there holding my hand? I was singing to nobody, just mowing the lawn. But I traded in the lawnmower. I upgraded. I went and worked at a Christmas tree farm. Anybody, any other fellow Christmas tree farm workers in here? No one delivering Christmas joy. Hmm. <laughs> it was a good job. But I also worked at a car wash. What about any car wash? Let's go. Yes. Stop. Car neutral. Thank you. Still got it. Like Nick said tonight, we are talking about, well, he didn't say, did he? I don't know if he said. We're kicking off a new series called Lifestyles in which we're going to be taking a look at what God has to say about everyday topics like managing money, making friends, interacting socially. Um, and tonight's topic, you guessed it, it's work. Now, I know we've kind of kept it secret a little bit because, honestly, I was scared. If, if you found out we were talking about work, you'd be like, why would I leave work to go listen to someone talk about work? And I get it. Like, I'll admit, it's not the most glamorous of topics. But if you think about it, the thing that you'll be doing, other, the only thing in life that you'll do more than work is sleep. And if you think a talk about work is bad, just be glad I'm not talking about sleep. Now, some of you are rolling your eyes at that joke. Others, others of you are genuinely curious, maybe, what God does have to say about our work. I mean, I'm probably biased, but I think that what God has to say is fascinating, um, and I hope that you'll agree. A little quick word before we go any further. We're going to be covering a lot of ground tonight. We're going to be moving rather quickly. At the end of the night, I hope that you understand that work is good, work is cursed, Work is significant, and work is renewed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this night. Thank you for bringing these people into this room. God, thank you for your word. That you've, that one, thank you that you care about the way that we work. Thank you that you talk about it in your word, and you've preserved that word for us. God, I pray that you would do the work that I am unable to do tonight, that your um, spirit would uh, do the work in our hearts through your word. If I say anything false, that it would fall on deaf ears. God, we thank you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, there's no better place to start than the beginning. Some wise man probably once said that. So we're gonna be looking at Genesis 1. Join with me in Genesis 1. If you're new to the Bible, Genesis is the first book, so don't flip too far. Uh, here at the block, 
We believe that the word of God, that the, the Bible is the word of God, inspired by God, and can be relied upon not only just for our decisions, but also with our life, our whole life as well. If you don't have a copy of, your, of a Bible, when you leave, take a look to your left at the connection table. We'd be happy to get you one. No strings attached. No book, reco- book report requirements or anything. All right, Genesis 1. Let's not go there yet. Verse 26, we have to talk about what happened in verses 1 to 25 first. So before we get to verse 26, verses 1 to 25, what happened? God speaks into nothing, and what was once nothing now becomes things. Right, we have um, light and darkness, we have the expanse, we have land, sea, vegetation, we have birds and weird fish, and every time that God creates, he rates his work, and every time he calls it good. Now what's missing from that picture? That's right, I'm sure somebody said it. it was, it's humans. That's where we pick up Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Our first foundational observation that we see here tonight is that mankind is created in the image of God. Some of you may be familiar with this idea, and I've heard it summarized a number of different ways, but I really like the way that one theologian summarizes it this way. He says, images are created to image. If you create an image, if you make a sculpture of someone, you do it to display something about that someone. You put it in the square in the middle of town, and you want people to look at it, notice it, think about that person, think something about them that they were noble or strong or wise or courageous or something. Now, what would it mean if you created seven billion statues of yourself and put them all over the world? It would mean that you would want people to notice you. God created us in his image so that we would display or reflect or communicate who he is, how great he is, and what he is like. So God has created us in his image to reflect him and his character to the world. Looking forward, the next verse The second paragraph here, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then three verses later, God summarizes his work. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So our second observation that we can make here in verse 28 is that God has given a two-part command to humanity, what we call the cultural mandate, if you will. One, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. Check. Secondly, subdue the earth. Now this word, this Hebrew word for subdue, it means to be dependent upon, subservient to, something along those lines. So it gives us this picture that to subdue the earth is for humanity to rule over the earth, not in a domineering way, not in a destructive way, but in a way that brings, brings about life, a way that cultivates and stewards God's creation. Think about this. God could have created the world with all technology already advanced, everything already created, but instead he creates a garden and invites humanity to help uh, in the creation process. And then, spoiler alert, when we look to Revelation at the end of it all, there's a city. So God invites humanity to partake in this journey from a, a garden to a city. We create alongside of him. 
subduing the earth, cultivating it. Sure sounds like there might be work involved with that though, right? I mean, anyone who has farmed, anyone who's gardened, anyone who's mowed a lawn while listening to Three Doors Down, anyone who's just tried to keep a house plant alive could tell you that cultivating the earth involves work. So we'll be revisiting this idea of the cultural mandate later. Um, apologies in advance for this phrase, but let's put a pin in it and circle back to it at the end. Look, you can take the man out of the corporate world, but you can't take the corporate lingo out of the man. So to recap, God has made mankind in his image. He has then um, blessed them. He says, gives us a command, be fruitful, multiply, increase over all the earth, subdue it. And then he calls it very good. Things so far are very good. The next chapter has more for us. Continuing on after God calls it very good, now in in uh, chapter two, so we have that same, we just looked at that first verse there. God called, saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. All of a sudden, this creating that we had seen God doing in chapter one is now described as work, right? Work that he chose to rest from, which is a whole separate topic but I think we can deduce a couple very important things from this. So if you're an artist in the room, put on your beret. Let's connect some dots. Okay, if you're an engineer, put on your bifocals or a hard hat or something. And we'll think logically through this. Okay, we can make a couple, a couple deducements from what we see here. So one, if God works, then work cannot be inherently bad, right? If God works, work cannot be inherently bad. Two, if man is created in the image of God and God works, then it makes sense that we are created to work. Work is in our very nature. Again, those two things. God worked, so work cannot be inherently bad. Secondly, if God worked and we are created in God's image, then it is in our very nature to work. It's in our very nature to work. God did not have to work. He chose to work, and we've been created in his image. Not convinced yet? Let's look ahead 13 verses here. Um, the Lord God, the second paragraph here, uh, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Not that, it, yeah, not that type of work it, but to work it, like to cultivate the earth, to, to steward it. <laughs> and, uh, and then he gives Adam a task four verses later. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So now God is inviting Adam into a specific work. He's calling him to name the, name the animals. And surely God could have done this on his own, right? Like one chapter previous to this, God speaks galaxies into existence. Like surely God could come up with a better name than anteater. But instead, he trusts Adam to do that. I'm trying to even picture, like, what that was like. Like, obviously, the ants had to be here first, and Adam's like, ant. And then the creature, like, scurries along and starts eating the ants, and Adam, like, looks, like, around, like, who's watching this? And then he's like, ant eater. <laughs> that, that's how it was, I bet. <laughs> Think about how flustered he was when the next animal was an aardvark. He was like, oh, no, I've already used ant eater. 
maybe you're like me and you just learned that anteaters and aardvarks are different. <laughs> but it's a cool job, right? God gave Adam the work to name the animals. Our first point tonight is that work used to be fun. Just kidding. Our first point tonight is work <laughs> is good. It was created by God, is honoring to God, it is dignifying to God, and dignified by God, and honoring to him. And I don't have to convince you of that feeling of satisfaction, right? After a job well done, that feeling of a tax deadline surpassed, I know that one, the feeling of relief after, um, like, you leave their certification exam, and you're like, you don't even really care anymore whether you passed it or not. You're just like, wow, I'm just so glad I have that done. That feeling of a work done, a job well done, the feeling of a glass of lemonade after a long day working in the yard, that last bag of leaves has been raked and bagged, a house project complete, a spice rack organized, a child nannied without incident, a cake baked. All these feelings a job well done, work that satisfies, but that feeling never like lasts forever, right? It never fully fulfills us, it always fades. Why is that? Well, we'll get our answer if we keep reading. In the next chapter, Genesis 3, everything changes. You might be, might be familiar with the story. Basically, Adam and Eve ate the apple. More than that though, tempted by the allure of being like God, they believed the lie that God is holding out on them. They sinned. And what I mean by that is they acted contrary to the will of God. The perfect relationship between God and his creation smashed into pieces by their rebellion. And it is into this sin-filled reality that we find ourselves today. You don't have to look very far to be convinced of the fact that sin has broken things in this world. I know I don't have to look any farther than the mirror in response to this curse, God actually issues a curse. This is later in Genesis 3, verse 17. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Our second point tonight, that work is cursed. Though it was created by God, like we said, is honoring to God, dignified by God, and glorifying to God, it is marred by the curse of sin. It is painful, full of thorns and thistles. There's toil involved in our work now. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. Work has been cursed. I think we've all seen this to be true, right? Or maybe it's just me. You spend hours cleaning out your inbox, only to show up the next morning, and you have seven things requiring your attention. You crossed three things off your to-do list today. Nice job. But you added five more. The server's down. The printer's jammed. The restaurant messed up the order that you're supposed to deliver. Um, it rained when it wasn't supposed to rain, or it, it was supposed to rain and it didn't rain. Your document didn't save. All of these are evidence that our physical work is, is, is cursed. This, you may, maybe you mistakenly doubled the dosage 
And on top of the pure work itself, there's no doubt that the interpersonal aspects of work are all screwed up because of sin as well. Because of sin, how toast are your relationships? Eh, you know, your manager, manager, it seems kind of prideful. Your client definitely doesn't want you to cheat, but he is asking you to keep finding, keep looking for an alternate path. Your co-contractor speaks inappropriately about women. You have to walk on eggshells to avoid the sarcasm from the lady with whom you share the closing shift. And your other coworker this whole time is making fun of, their, of your patients behind their back. Well, she's at least the only one that's bold enough to say it out loud. You are still thinking the same thoughts. Because of sin, relationships are broken. Work is hard and toilsome, and work is futile. So much so that the mandate that God gave to Adam had to be changed. Look with me. This is crazy. So sin continues to increase in the world, so much so that God says, hey, we need to start over. So he, he finds a righteous man named Noah, spares Noah, floods the rest of the earth, and then gives a, uh, a covenant, makes a covenant with Noah's family, and blesses him. This is six chapters later in Genesis chapter 9. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Sounds rather familiar. Be fruitful, increase in number. Let's put them side by side. Look pretty similar too, except for that one key phrase there at the end, sub and subdue it. Because mankind no longer uh, is capable of subduing the earth in God's mind because of sin. Subduing the earth is not even entirely possible. So what does this truth mean for us? It means that when you're discontent and dis disillusioned at work, and it's leading to a lack of fulfillment in life, listen to me here. It means that you're experiencing the very nature of work. When you are frustrated or stressed at work, you feel kind of empty inside. You're, it's leading you to a lack of joy, a lack of zeal in life. You're experiencing the very nature of work. And unfortunately, because work is cursed, just going and taking another job, getting that promotion that you've been striving for, working in that other department is tempting to think that that, once you get that, it'll solve the problem. The grass is greener, is it very tempting. I've been there. You know, oh, look, over here, the grass is so green, I can work from home. But ultimately, like, my boss's character is kind of questionable. Oh, over here, that field's pretty green over there. I, the the work-life balance is so much better. But all the people I work with are over the age of 52. Like, look at the health insurance benefits of that field over there, it's so green. Well, my work is super repetitive now. So obviously, the, the, the problems can, can differ, but the result is the same. More than that, if work will always be disappointing, toilsome and frustrating, it means that it is foolish for me to look for my significance in or to stake my identity on my work because ultimately I will always end up empty. Let me ask you a question. What do you stake your identity on? When life starts to shake around you, where do you look for stability? What are you leaning on, trusting that it will hold you up? A title? Sales manager. Great. Until your competitor's product renders you useless in your region, your region gets consolidated and given to someone else. Sorry. Petroleum engineer. Well, the year is 2020. Oil is negative dollars per barrel. So we're sorry, we cannot afford your services currently. 
uh, political staffer. Oh, the other party won office this year. Tax accountant, a real prestigious one. Recession-proof, well, until a global pandemic causes your company to lay off 5,000 people, including yourself, across the country. That one hits a little close to home. <laughs> not as steady as I might have thought. Maybe it's not a title. Maybe it is in my role. I'm a dentist, and all of my value in life is tied to my ability to help people. The, way, the more I help people, the better I feel about myself, the more valuable I see myself. Well, then a crippling diagnosis leaves my mo fine motor skills dwindling, and with it, my purpose in life is dwindling as well. Maybe it's not helping people, maybe it's training people, training, developing people, developing new hires. As soon as your company has to enter a hiring freeze, all of a sudden, what you lived for, the thing you were looking for, for your fulfillment, has been taken away, and where do you turn now? Titles won't satisfy, and roles won't either, because work is cursed. I know what you're thinking. Okay, speaker guy, you spent a lot of time talking about how work is good, but if it's ultimately meaningless, does it actually really even matter how I work? Who's, good question, who's curating these questions? It's a really good question. Let's see what God has to say to us through the words of the Apostle Paul. So if you've been with us a while, um, you'll remember that Paul was the man who wrote a letter to Timothy, uh, wrote a couple of them to him actually. We walked through one a few months ago. Um, if you missed that series or wanna go back and listen to any talks that we've had from this year, you can find um, all of them in the podcast section of Spotify or in Apple Podcasts. And if you use Apple Podcasts, let me ask you, have you ever tried using Spotify? Because the Apple Podcast app is miserable. <laughs> but that's not important. All right, if you remember, to recap, Paul was one of the Jewish elites who was overseeing the killing of Christians just after the time of Jesus until God radically transformed his life. God said, hey, Paul, you're done killing Christians. You're going to be working for me now. So before he writes this letter to Timothy, he writes a different letter to a church, to a people of Christ followers in a Roman city of Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. He encourages them in their faith and gives them specific instructions for how they should conduct their lives now as Christ followers. Specific instructions for their lifestyle. Wow, that was so dramatic. In verse 17 of chapter 3 in his letter to the Colossians, Paul writes, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do. Seems like work would be inclusive in that, but we don't have to assume. He clears it up for us a few verses later. First, Paul gives a few more specific instructions to wives, to husbands, and to children before he turns his attention to slaves. To slaves. Does that make the hair on the back of your neck stand up? Same for me. So we'll pause here and note a few distinctions worth making as we look at who Paul is writing to. So something important to understand about um, slavery in the Roman Empire, 15 to 30% of the Roman population consisted of slaves. There's so many, in fact, that uh, the Roman philosopher Seneca writes about a time when the Roman Senate was considering having slaves all wear the same uniform, but they were scared to do that because they were afraid that if the slaves saw how many of them there were, that they would cause some sort of uprising or rebellion. 
Secondly, slavery was not race-based. Um, there was a few common means um, that this would happen. One would be a prisoner, as a prisoner of war. Obviously, in that time, there's a lot of conquest going on, a lot of battles. And if your land was conquered, you now become Roman property. Another way was through being indebted to someone. This one's a little bit harder to like understand in today's day and age, but picture yourself as a poor farmer who went into debt to buy seed and some, a few tools, but the rain didn't come this year. The harvest is not plentiful. In fact, there's really not any harvest to speak of at all, which means not only do you not have money to pay back who you owe for the seed and for the tools, but you also don't have food for your family. You're getting desperate. There's no government bailouts. There's no crop insurance. There's no stimmies. So instead, the farmer sells himself and his family to a landowner in order to have some sort of food on the table and earn some sort of income so he can hopefully pay off his debt. And then third, most common method was if you were born of a slave, you would be still a slave then. Um, third point here, treatment of slaves varied greatly depending on what occupation they were in. Um, but many work jobs that we would consider occupations today, including cooks, estate managers, hairdressers, nurses, secretaries, even accountants, physicians, and teachers, etc. Um, so especially as these Greek lands are getting conquered, these educated people are being taken in as Roman slaves and then given jobs that we would call careers today. So obviously I'm not getting up here to defend the practice, neither is Paul, I don't think, but I do think a little bit of context helps us understand who the, the audience that Paul is writing to and see if you agree with me that I think that we can have a little bit to take from what he says. Colossians 3, this is five verses past where we were previously. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. In other words, obey your bosses all the time, not just when they walk by and can see your screen. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the, Christ, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. This is a revolutionary paradigm shift. Though work will not fulfill, how we work is still significant to God. We are called to work as if working for the Lord, not for humans. Dave is no longer my boss. God is my boss. Does this mean that because Dave has no authority over me, I can leave at 2.15 p.m. today? No, it means the opposite. It means that because I'm submitted to a higher authority and have given my life to that, that I work and do my work with all that I have. And instead of resulting in a dereliction of duties, this motive gives my work significance. Late in 1992, Aladdin and Home Alone 2 hit theaters 10 days apart. I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston was climbing the charts. I was eating, sleeping, and pooping my way through the first few months of my life. And a man named Mark Whitaker was fourth in command for a company named Archer Daniel Midland, or ADM for short, which was a top 60, one of the top 60 biggest companies in the world. Now Mark knew that ADM was engaged in an illegal business practice called price fixing. Have you all ever heard of this? Price fixing is when companies secretly agree not to sell a product below a certain price. And price fixing is illegal because competition is key to a capitalistic society. Well, our Mark, our Mark Whitaker guy knew this was going on at his company, and so did his wife. And his wife happened to be a woman with high character. 
she told Mark that either he would tell, she would tell the FBI that ADM had a price fixing agreement or he could. Look, you can't invite an accountant up here and expect him to skip over the juicy white collar crime details, okay? So what did Mark do? He tipped off the FBI. But the FBI couldn't just storm in, they needed to gather more information. So they taped a hidden microphone on him, had him go back to his same old job with his same old boss and his same old coworkers for three years. Every morning at 6 a.m., he taped a microphone to himself. The difference in the situation between Mark's old job and his new job, he's still doing the same work, but his allegiance was no longer to ADM. It was to the FBI. Suddenly, Mark's day-to-day -day activities were meaningful. They had significance because they counted toward a more important mission. This is exactly what Paul is saying here in verse 23. If you are a Christian in the room tonight, your work matters because you are employed by a higher authority. Your work has significance. The third point tonight, if you're taking notes, work is significant. Let's look again at the passage, specifically verse 24, the underlined portion here. I'll, read, I'll start in 23, though. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Flipped around, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord, then work at it with all your heart. That's kind of backwards to what our society would say. I think our culture would say, work at it with all your heart so that you get the eternal reward, the eternal inheritance. It's a cause and effect. Strive, work harder, sacrifice more, rise and grind so that you get the reward. Paul says, no, if you are a follower of Jesus, you already have your eternal reward, and there's nothing you can do to earn it. Nothing you can do to earn it. If you're a follower of Jesus, your work should look different. You were a child of God, created in God's image, like the statues, remember, to reflect God's character and reflect God and his character to the rest of the world. So what does this look like practically to work as if working for the Lord? I came up with a list of questions that we'll look through. Um, a couple things as I was thinking through these. One, I realized I've got a lot of work to do in these. So if you feel a little like twinge in your heart when you're like, ooh, yeah, how did he know that about me? Just know it, I'm saying it about myself probably as well. And also, I understand that some of these are going to be pretty uh, counter to our culture, wildly counter to our culture. And the end, keep in mind, the end goal is not behavior modification, okay? This is not a list of boxes to check to make sure we're good workers, but the goal is to examine our hearts as we aim to work as if working for the Lord. So what does it look like to work for the Lord? First of all, I think working for the Lord means being someone whose word matters. When you say you're going to do something, do you do it? When you make a commitment, do you keep it? Work with integrity. That means making value-based decisions even when you don't want to. Alternatively, and this one's definitely for me, when you say you're going to be somewhere at a certain time, are you there at that time? Are you using your time at work to do the thing you're getting paid to do, or are you stealing time from your company? You know what this might mean? This might mean putting your phone away while you work. It's a very novel concept, I know, something I struggle with. I was like, this was in the back of my mind as I was working this week. I'm like, I should put my phone away. I'm working on that talk. And like, I left it out next to me and just like, boop, 
boop, notification, notification. I'm just getting distracted. I'm not actually that popular. It's probably like fantasy football alerts or something. But, <laughs> but I, I just was, it was like a dopamine rush. I would like see a client question, kind of get frustrated. Boom, what, hey, what's, what's going on over here on my phone? Hey, technical issue, the software's not doing what it's supposed to. How do I medicate? I look down at my phone, get that dopamine rush. So I'm right here with you. Let's put our phone away while we're working and see how that affects our work. Going back to the question, are you doing what you're paid to do or do you have software on your computer that wiggles your mouse so that you stay green and others think you're working while you're scrolling through TikTok or building your boosted same game parlay? These are gonna get small, huh? If you had to account for your time at the end of each day, would you be embarrassed by the result? And some of you have to do this at your actual job, but if your job requires you to spend a lot of time on a computer, try downloading a free time tracker. Start the timer when you start a task and stop it when you take an Instagram break or when you evaluate a fantasy football trade offer or when your coworker stops by to relive the latest episode of Rings of Power. And you might be a little surprised at how, where your time is going throughout the day. Four, would an audit of your corporate card usage make you nervous? Working for the Lord means stewarding your company's money and resources well. Actually follow the expense reimbursement guidelines. Five, do you have a privileged mentality or a deserving mentality? In other words, is your work something that you have to do or is it something that you get to do? This means being thankful. Does your speech reflect gratitude or are you looking for every opportunity to complain about how bad your third graders were today or, and yesterday and the day before that? Look, we get it, the third graders are not good and that's why we appreciate you teachers. But does your speech reflect gratitude? Does receiving feedback make you defensive and bitter or are you someone who receives feedback with humility? A truly humble person cannot be offended. Similarly, if you messed up, do you take ownership of your mistakes or do you, are you quick to point the finger to others? Shift the blame. A few more here. Are you quick to join in on gossip? If everything that you said about leadership was recorded, would your higher-ups have a higher view of the God you claim to serve or a lower view of him? Your words are powerful. Remember this, working for the Lord means caring for the people around you and looking for opportunities to love them. Encourage your coworkers. Tell them what you appreciate about them. Speak highly of them publicly, and if you need to correct someone, do it in private. Do you volunteer to do the jobs that no one else wants? Or another way to say that, the jobs that are maybe saved for the less tenured? Remember, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve, which means for us, we can do the dishes. We can clean up the mess that no one else wants to do. Last one here, do you get 87% of, of the way through a project and then just kind of shove it off to some, for someone else to fix and to finish? Working for the Lord means persevering until the work is done. Like I said, the end goal of this exercise is not behavior modification. It's to examine our hearts as we bring every area of our, of our lives, including our work, under the authority and lordship of Jesus. If our work is a form of reverence, a form of worship, then let's aim to worship acceptably.
Maybe your problem isn't in how hard you work, but in whom you are working hard for. Maybe you have no pro problem picking up the extra project, but it's for your own self-glorification, your own accolades, your own prestige. Maybe you like working through the weekend, but if you're honest with yourself, it's not because, if you're honest with yourself, it's because you'd rather do the work of writing a few more appellate briefs rather than doing the work of resolving conflict with your wife. You're eager to burn the midnight oil, but you aren't working for the Lord. You're working for financial independence. You're working for a sense of security because deep down you aren't sure if God really will meet all your needs, and it's easier to work than it is to trust. Remember, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Go the extra mile for the client. Work overtime. Mentor the student when no one else sees. Serve your coworkers self-sacrificially. Not to win Dave's approval. Certainly not to earn the eternal inheritance. But out of reverence and worship for God. Let's move from the words of Paul to the words of Jesus. Um, the Gospel of John uh, is a close-up account of Jesus' life written by one of his close friends. At this point, we're where we pick up John's writing. Jesus has just done a miracle to feed thousands of people. People are starting to get curious. They're starting to follow him. They're starting to ask questions. And it's to these people who are asking him questions that Jesus responds here in verse 27 of John chapter 6. Jesus, this is Jesus speaking. He says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the God... For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? I think what they're really asking is this. Jesus, what's the work that we have to do for you to find us acceptable? Jesus, what's, what's the work that we have to do in order for you to be pleased? What's the work that we need to do to be considered good enough? Jesus answers him in verse 29. Jesus answered, the work of God is this. Pause there. How would you finish the sentence? Or how do you expect Jesus to answer? The work of God is this, to go to church every Sunday. Maybe the work of God is this, to make sure that your good deeds outweigh your bad. No, Jesus says, the work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent, to believe in the one he has sent, which is Jesus. To believe is more than mental assent. It's more than just agreeing in my head. It, to believe is to have confidence in. It's to entrust myself to, to lean fully on him when everything around me starts to shake. What I believe in is the thing that I'm grabbing hold to, grabbing hold of for security. It is to stop striving to find significance in the work that you do, yield control of your life to Jesus, stake your identity on who he says you are. When we search for our significance in our works, we either find success, which leads to pride, right? I have done this thing, I am worthy. Or we're falling short in our work and all of a sudden it leads to feelings of self-doubt, it leads to feelings of failure and worthlessness. So for this reason, we cannot stake our identity on the work we do, but we, it must, our identity must be in who we are as those who believe. Fourth point tonight, through Jesus, work is renewed. What do I mean? 
Earlier we talked about how God's response to sin entering the world was to curse mankind and curse work. Well, there's another curse that he gives, and this one is for the serpent, the one who was tempting and deceiving Adam and Eve. Back to Genesis 3, verse 14 this time. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, you, Satan, will strike man's heel, but man will crush your head. This is the first mention of the gospel in the Bible, which means the good news. It means the message of hope that is weaved throughout the rest of this book. Because only eight verses after Adam and Eve chose to separate themselves from God and his will and his desire for them, God responds. Before he curses Adam and Eve, before he curses work, he gives a promise here of what we call salvation. A promise of deliverance from sin's curse, a promise of rest for the weary. You will strike his heel, God says to the serpent, but he will crush your head. And thousands of years later, Jesus comes to the earth as the God-man to fulfill this very promise and make a way for us as sinful, broken, rebellious humans to be made right with God. He lived without sin. He worked as a carpenter without sin. He worked diligently, like I said, without sin. He said, as we just discussed, that the work of God is to believe in him. And then 11 chapters later, this man, who some called crazy, and some called a good teacher, was preparing to give his life for yours and for mine when he says this in John chapter 17. Now this is eternal life. Pause again. What's he going to say here? Now this is eternal life. Save up your PTO and travel. I don't think so. And what I mean by eternal life, I should define that as just like life to the full, experiencing life to the full. Now this is eternal life. To find something you love so you never work a day in your life. Nope, Jesus doesn't say that either. Now this is eternal life, that they, the people that God has given to him, may know you, the only true God. He's talking to the Father here. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Jesus has brought glory to God by doing the work of God. Yes, I'm sure he brought God glory in his carpentry, right? But I think he might be talking about more than carpentry here. What is the work he's talking about finishing? We find out days later when Jesus was brutally beaten and hung on a Roman cross. With his dying breath, Jesus declares, to Telesai, finished, paid in full. The serpent had struck the heel of humanity. Death had won the day. But he didn't stay that way. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. He will crush your head, redeeming the curse, defeating sin and death once for all. The work we could never do, your debt and mine paid in full. Look back with me in Genesis 2. Remember God worked, he declared it, he called it finished, and then he rested. And now thousands of years later, Jesus, God in human flesh, worked, declared the work finished, to Telesai, he says, and then was laid to rest in a tomb for three days, before he walked out of that tomb so that you and I can have rest. Rest from the striving, rest from climbing the corporate ladder, rest for our souls. What does this mean for us? 
If you're in this room tonight and have sought to find your value and significance in your career, if you have put your faith for deliverance in your morality, if you are trusting in your own good works to earn God's favor, can I encourage you to consider the work and the words of Jesus? The only work God requires is to believe in the one that he has sent. Put your faith for salvation in the only work that can save. He did that work that you were powerless to do so that the only work left for you to do is to believe. If you have questions about this, find me afterwards. Ask the person who invited you. Um, or when we finish, head back to the back. There'll be people with lanyards who would love to talk about you, talk about this with you. Hear me when I say this. Jesus longs to give you rest. What does it mean for the rest of us? If you've put your faith in Jesus, I want to charge you with this. You are invited into a greater work. As we discussed, your allegiances have changed. You work for another king. Go to work tomorrow and work hard and work honestly and love people as if working for the Lord. And yet there is still kingdom work left to do. Let's bring it full circle. Remember I promised earlier, I promised we would circle back. Well, that's what we're doing here. Circle back, bring it full circle as we promised, as we bring it home, rounding third, coming into home here. Earlier we looked at the cultural mandate in Genesis 1, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with those made in God's image and subdue it. God gave humanity authority over the earth to fill the earth and subdue it, but humanity failed and it was not possible for sinful beings to accomplish it any longer. That's what we talked about here in Genesis 1. But along came the more perfect Adam. After Jesus had raised from the dead and appeared to over 500 people, he's getting ready to depart for heaven and he has one more command. See the similarities to Genesis 2, Genesis 1 rather. See the similarities in what I'm about to read to Genesis 1, which we just read. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The command, the same as it was in Genesis 2, fill the earth, all nations, with image bearers of God. As you go, make disciples who will teach others. As you go into the office, make disciples. As you work from home, make disciples. As you repair your house, make disciples. As you raise your children, make disciples. Subdue the earth, not by physical dominion this time, but by inviting the people of the earth to submit to the authority and lordship of Jesus. Our guy Mark from the FBI story, here he is portrayed by Matt Damon in the movie The Informant. And here is our guy Mark. Ambitious casting decision, I must say. <laughs> Here they are together. I, this is not my image, it's Getty Images, don't sue. He ended up serving nine years in prison for his role in some of the ADM shenanigans Mark did. After his sentencing, he attempted suicide twice. Three months into his sentence, he decided he was, his life was going to go a different route. He decided to submit his allegiance to a new, new king. No longer was he working for, for ADM, and no longer was he working for the FBI. Now he was working for Jesus and doing the work of Jesus. After spending time with someone a little farther along in their faith, he started using his prison time in a way that would matter for eternity. During his nine years, he led 61 different guys through an 18-month discipleship program, doing the work of the Lord. 
And then he said this in an interview after he got out of prison. He said, at $20 a month, his wages in prison, for nine years after I earned two to three million a year for eight years before that, they were the most productive years of my life was federal prison. This work in prison was his most significant. So partner in the work of the Lord. Invite others to share in what Paul described as the eternal inheritance. How? Grab lunch with a coworker and ask them about their spiritual journey. Invite some coworkers to meet with you before your shift to read the Bible together in a nearby coffee shop. When you hear a coworker sharing a personal struggle, offer to pray with them and then actually pray with them. Tell them where your hope is found. Does this work of the Lord sound scary to you? Yeah, it sounds scary to me too until I remember that the work of the Lord is not dependent on my skills or my abilities or my knowledge or my charisma. And praise God, praise God that it is not. One more verse I'll leave you with, and this is my favorite verse. And yet another of Paul's letters, he writes this to the church at Corinth. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. To summarize tonight, work is good, but because of sin, work is cursed. But because of the work of Jesus, our work has significance. But even still, Jesus invites us to partner with him and give ourselves fully to the renewed work of the Lord, a work that is never in vain. Let's pray. Father God, there's nothing, no amount of work that we can do to receive your approval. There's no way our good can outweigh are bad, but we thank you for the work of Jesus, doing what we could never do to win, to earn for us the eternal inheritance that we could never earn. God, I pray that you would go with us this week as we go into our workplaces. Allow us to work as if working for you. Show us what that means and what that looks like. God, bless our relationships in our workplace. Bless our work to you and give us a vision for what it means to do the work of the Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.